We are in Galatians today. Galatians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. That's page 975 in the Pew Bibles. 975. If you do not have a Bible, after you're done using the one in the pews, we invite you to go out to our info table and grab a Bible that's out there. There should be some small black ones. If not, we will find one for you and we'll give it to you so that you have one. That first, you know that we're not making anything up. That's all coming from the Bible. But also that you can grow in your own relationship with the Lord. So we have a lot to discuss today, and we don't have as much time because we, have the covenant, we had the covenant entrance day. But this is a great passage for covenant entrance day because what this passage does, it helps us understand what does a church look like when it's shaped by the gospel. When a church is actually shaped by the gospel, where it's shaped by the gospel that we that Jesus, the belief that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, rose again from the dead, and this gives us life everlasting. We're justified. We become adopted as God's sons. And now we walk through the process of sanctification as, as through it, the Holy Spirit. And one day we will be glorified with and be with the Father and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit one day. And that's a great day. But what does that look like now? What does it look like when we're actually being shaped by that good news? And that's what I want to talk about today. And we'll be in Galatians this week, and we'll be in Galatians next week, and then three weeks from today, or sorry, two weeks from today, Advent begins. Advent is the time where we wait for the coming of Jesus. And we enter the story of the first century where they're waiting for the light of Jesus to come, and then we're also waiting as Christians now for Jesus to come again in the future. And our sermon series is going to be A Weary World Rejoices. It's going to be Advent and Christmas in Isaiah. And what we're going to talk about is how the coming of the promised Messiah is good news for a worn-out world. Advent and Christmas will be the, one of the best times to invite your friends. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but our world is worn out. Presidential elections, mandates, don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a pandemic. That was a joke. We all know that's happening. Your friends and family need the gospel. And they've often called Isaiah the fifth gospel because of how much good news is in it. So we're going to go through that and learn about the good news for a worn out world. But today, I want us to realize that the gospel isn't just something we believe in but it's also something we live out. And a church like Liberty Northeast that's shaped by the gospel lives out the gospel by restoring each other, investing in gospel preaching, and doing good to all. See, the gospel is meant to be believed and lived. Gospel belief and gospel action. So, Oftentimes in our culture, on both sides, you have some people who overemphasize the belief part to the neglect of the living out part. And they'll say something like, well, just preach the gospel. But we know from, from Galatians chapter 2, we don't just preach the gospel and just stops there. But it actually it trans changes and it translates into our lives and we actually live it out. But then you have other people who overemphasize the living out part. Where it's all about being a good person. It's all about living like Jesus and looking like Jesus and doing the things he does. 
but they don't necessarily believe the gospel. You need both. You need to believe it and you need to live it out. Gospel belief and gospel action. So the way we know whether or not we truly believe the gospel is whether or not we live it out. That's the whole story in Galatians chapter 2. That's the whole point of the story. Is to point out that Peter, the apostle Peter, says he believes the gospel, but when his homies from Jerusalem show up, he neglects all of his Gentile friends to eat and spend time with the Jewish friends and acts like a Jew once again. And Paul says, you're not living in step with the gospel. You're actually not living it out. If you actually believe the gospel, we would see it in your life, Peter. So gospel belief or faith, not works, is necessary for my salvation, but gospel action or good works are evidence of my salvation. Good works flow out of a true belief in the gospel. And as we've seen specifically, it does it in a number of different ways. Galatians chapter 5 talks about how the gospel frees us to serve one another. That's what Pastor Kyle talked about a couple weeks ago. And we all talked about last week about having our lives filled with the fruit of the Spirit. That's another part where the action of the gospel actually is seen. So if a church like Liberty Northeast, if we're going to be shaped by the gospel, we need to be a people who believe the gospel and who live it out. We need to be shaped by the gospel. And a gospel-shaped church does three things, in, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. It restores, it invests, and it does good to all. It restores, invests, and does good to all. So first, a gospel-shaped church restores. Where do we see that in Galatians chapter 6? Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted to. A gospel-shaped church restores sinners and it restores sufferers. In terms of sinners, what Paul is telling us here is telling us what to do if another Christian is caught in sin. So he's not necessarily saying what we do if they're caught in the act of sinning, right? If you caught them in the act of sinning, but rather what we do when a Christian's entangled, when they're caught in a pattern of sin. So it's not saying you confront somebody every time you see them doing something wrong, but when you notice there's a pattern of sin in their life, you address it. That's what it means to be shaped by the gospel, is to address sinful patterns and behavior. So even though we have the Holy Spirit, and Paul's been talking about this the whole time, even though we have the Holy Spirit, because we still live with our sinful nature, and we talked about last week about a war of desires, we can still get caught in certain sin patterns. For me, I often think about the time, this one time I, I got caught in a soccer net. I was at practice, and we were all kicking the balls into the net, and I went behind because I'm a good teammate. I went behind the net, and if anybody's played soccer, you've done this. You kick the balls out from the other side of the net back to everybody on the field. So I did that, turned around, and my cleats got caught, and I fell down on my face, and I couldn't get out. I'm like strangling, I'm like pulling my leg out of the net, right? I'm just like trying to get out there. Everyone else thought it was hilarious. I found it extremely embarrassing. 
And as I'm trying to get, I'm like tripping over myself, I'm tripping over, I'm getting caught, right? So what Paul's trying to say is sin is, isn't funny like that, but it has a similar effect. You can get caught in the net of sin. It's pesky, it does something like that. So first let me say, if you're here today and you keep getting caught in the same sin over and over again, I don't know what that is, maybe substance abuse, it might be sexual addiction, you can't stop gossiping or lying or cheating, let me just first say, you got to tell someone. You got to tell someone. You have to bring it into the light in order to be free. Because so many of us are so good at putting on a show, putting on a front, and then when it comes time to actually, we're actually caught in something, we never tell anybody what happens is we die inside. And that sin destroys us and crushes us. But sin in a gospel-shaped church is everyone's problem. We don't go, well, you know, why don't we just wait till Evan finds out? Like, why don't we wait till Kyle notices? Or maybe the elders notice, or at least maybe the home meeting leaders don't notice. Then someone will help that person, not me. What Paul's saying and what the Bible's saying is, no, you find out, you help out. It's that simple. So if someone comes to you and they tell you that they're caught in, a, in sin and they're really struggling to get out, you don't go, well, let's just wait until Evan notices. That's called being a bad friend. It's also called being a bad church member. You find out, you help out. Say something. Care for that person that way. Help them out. But Paul does say that you who are spiritual, it's your job to do that, to restore the person. So it's the job of those who are spiritually fit to help that person out of their sin. So you might not believe that you are spiritually fit enough to handle it. Don't just shrug it off or blow it off. Take the person caught in the pattern of sin to someone who can help. See, too often in our culture, because we're a non-confrontational culture, Churches ignore sin. And that's a problem. Sin in the church is everybody's problem. But a gospel-shaped church restores sinners. And we restore with a spirit of gentleness. I know virtually nothing about automobile restorations. Virtually nothing. Although I did go through a stage where I watched a certain show on MTV hosted by Exhibit, so I have some idea of what goes on. But I imagine that restoration isn't just pounding and cutting and trimming. But more often it's about washing and cleaning and waxing the car. Too many Christians are only move is to beat people up with their sin. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes you do have to call people on the carpet. Sometimes you do need to pound. Sometimes you do need to cut. Sometimes you do need to trim away. But that can't be always your first move or your only move. The goal is restoration, not condemnation. So you might do that for 
a moment and say, man, what you're doing right now is really destroying you. It's destroying your family. You've got to stop right now. And call them on the carpet. But the goal should be restoration, not condemnation. See, if we're addressing a sin pattern in someone's life and it's resulting in condemnation, we're doing exactly what Jesus doesn't do. Romans 8 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if Jesus doesn't condemn, neither do we. Instead, we need to be gentle in the process of restoration. We need to celebrate people's victories. When they sinned less this week than last week with that pattern of sin, we celebrate that with them. Hey, man, I know you struggled with that seven times last week. This week is five. Great. The Holy Spirit's working. Congratulations. Or some of us might need to Google or make, and make some phone calls to find that person a Christian counselor. Or you might need to just text them regularly to let them know you're praying for them and you care about them. See, it's not rocket science. It's everybody's problem, but we don't make it bigger than it actually is. So we don't ignore sin patterns, but we as the sons of God, as Galatians 4 tells us about, are called to confront sin in our brothers and our sisters. And those who are spiritually mature are the ones who to restore our brothers and sisters, and we do it gently. But Paul does warn, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul is realistic. Paul realizes that sin is this net that's easy to get caught into and has a pesky way of entangling more people in the net. So you have to be spiritually mature to recognize when you're being pulled in to sin. So the spiritually mature go to help, but they make sure they're pulling the person up rather than being pulled down. And we also restore sufferers. We restore sinners and we restore sufferers. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is what Jesus says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the way we do that for each other is we bear each other's burdens. So as sons of God, who are brothers in the Lord, I carry your burdens and you carry mine. And think about how countercultural that is. First, we carry each other's burdens voluntarily. No one can force you or force me to carry a burden. But it's also countercultural because we, uh, we take it on. We don't say, ah, it's not my problem. Ah, it's none of my business. Let them deal with it. No, we step in and we help. And why do we bear each other's burdens? Like, why is this important for Paul? Why, what's important for us? Keep in mind, we bear each other's burdens because Christ bore ours gospel belief and gospel action, if you know Jesus, bore the heaviest thing you'll ever deal with is your sin and your guilt and your shame and your condemnation. Everybody else's pack, everybody else's load, everybody else's burden seems so much lighter compared to that. 
So gospel belief and gospel action. A gospel-shaped church believes in Jesus who bore the burden of our sins on the cross and in response to what he's done, because we're so grateful, we're so thankful, we take on other people's burdens. So when it comes to burdens, we often think about major things, though. We often think it's like being there for somebody when a loved one dies. Or giving up your spare bedroom for someone who's down on their luck. And those things are good. But Paul doesn't say only the major burdens. He says, carry, bear each other's burdens, no matter the size. So if you're here today and you're struggling, what burdens are you carrying that you need help carrying? Do you have questions about how to raise your kids? Do you need a babysitter so you can have a date night with your wife? Do you need help renovating part of your house? Do you need a ride to church or to home meeting? Do you need help finding a counselor? Do you have trouble balancing your finances? What are the burdens you're carrying? Ask for help. Because Paul makes it very clear, I'm not allowed to say no. I say, let me help. See, too many of us are too prideful to say anything. We've convinced ourselves that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But this often leads to loneliness because we end up carrying our burdens by ourselves and we never say anything to anyone and we end up being crushed by the things that we're carrying. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, frees you. It frees you to say, it frees you to, it frees you to say, I need help. It frees you to say, please, somebody else carry this with me. It says, please, this is too heavy for me, and I'm stuck in this rut, and I need somebody to bail me out. It frees you to say that. It's okay to not be okay. And Jesus says that. He says, I'll take your place. I'll carry your burdens, but I've given you a family to do it with you. So you ask for help, no matter how big or how small it is, ask. If you need a babysitter, we'll find you one. If you need help renovating your house, we'll help you. Today alone, somebody's tire popped out in the parking lot. There were two or three dudes from our church out there fixing the tire. They didn't say, hey, you know what? We'll let somebody else deal with that. You figure that out yourself. I'll call AAA. They said, no, well, let's take a look at it. Let's fix it. It might seem small, but you know what it's like to drive out of home on a flat tire when you have kids in the car? You have to be open about your burdens because Christ carries yours. There's no secrets. Like, Jesus already out at you on the cross. He already out at you. We all already know you need help. You all already know that I need help because Jesus outed me. Everything else is minor compared to that of what Jesus carried for me. But also, are you carrying anyone else's burdens? So you might not be a person who feels like you have burdens that people need to carry. Are you carrying anybody else's? 
See, gospel-shaped church can only be a place of restoration where we carry each other's burdens. We can't say, I'm too busy or I'm too tired, or we can't see our problems as major or their problems as minor, right? This is what we often do. We overemphasize our problems. We make them bigger than they actually are, and everybody else's problems, we say, well, they're not, they're small in comparison to mine. And truthfully, that's selfish. And truthfully, that too will lead you to loneliness because you made it all about you. And you'll never experience the joy of walking alongside anyone else. And when the day comes when you need help carrying something, no one will be there. Because your attitude pushed everyone away. I don't need help. I'm good. I'm not going to carry your burdens. I'm good. That attitude pushes everyone away. And so what happens is when you have burdens, they'll crush you too. So there's freedom actually in carrying other people's burdens, in actually being, helping people, asking people to help carry our burdens. But Paul does say there's one load that you and I can't bear for each other. And that's the load you carry before the judgment seat of God one day. That's what verses 4 and 5 are saying. He said, bear each other's burdens, but there's only one burden, one load I can't carry for you. And that's that. But all the other ones, I can help with. You can help with. You need help. I need help. So gospel-shaped church restores, but a gospel-shaped church also invests. Look in, at verse 6. Jump down to verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the flesh, spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What Paul is saying is that a gospel-shaped church invests in gospel preaching. Here Paul draws on the most common agricultural analogy. He says, you reap what you sow. He says, we should expect to reap what we sow. If I plant tomato seeds, I should expect to reap what? Tomatoes, not cucumbers, and vice versa. If I plant cucumber seeds, I should expect to reap cucumbers. And Paul's saying, if you want to reap the gospel, you need to sow the gospel. And what he's referring to is actually investing in gospel preaching. Like, think back, if you've been here for, through our Galatian series, think back. The main problem with the Galatian church is that they believe a false gospel. Paul says in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he says, are you, you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And Paul's angry, he's frustrated, he's upset that they're turning to a different gospel. And the Galatian Christians have been sitting under what Paul calls a non-gospel. They need to, then what this teaching was telling them, what this preaching was telling them is that they need to believe in Jesus and keep the law of Moses to be justified. And Paul says, no, no. He says, if you sow a false or non-gospel, you'll get the fruit of what that brings. 
You'll get spiritual slavery, you'll get idolatry, you'll get fighting and bickering, and you'll have an overpowering sinful nature. But he says if you sow the gospel, you'll get freedom, the freedom, you'll reap the freedom you're looking for, adoption, sonship, you'll have lives marked by the Holy Spirit. So he says to sow the gospel means here investing in gospel preaching. It means if you don't sit under gospel preaching, you'll turn to the non-gospels in your life. In other words, Paul is saying, pay someone to preach the gospel to you. He's saying you can't afford to not invest in this area. He says, what happens if you stop paying gospel preachers? Someone will come in again and preach a non-gospel to you. And you've got to sow the gospel if you want to reap the gospel. See, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what the Bible says in general, it says, it says your spiritual echocardiogram is your wallet. It says you want to know what you think, you think will save you or justifies you or makes you worthy? Check your bank statement. And that will tell us where you think you're getting worth from. That will tell Jesus, where you think you're getting your justification from? What you think saves you? Nothing is more important than the gospel taking root. Listen to me. Nothing is more important than the gospel taking root and bearing fruit in your life. So you got to invest in it. But many of us invest in everything else but the gospel. Or we invest in everything first or more before we invest in the gospel. So we invest in our kids, their schooling, their activities. We invest in vacations or weekend getaways. We invest in fixing up our houses. We invest in nice cars or trucks. We invest in eating out. We invest in getting the newest iPhone or we invest in Netflix. Like, I don't know anything that's more counter to the gospel than Netflix. But many of us put money there in our streaming services. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. Like, I have Netflix. I have an iPhone. Not the newest one. Don't judge me. But I have one. I'm not saying those things aren't important. But the most important thing in your life you don't have money for? And I'm not talking about you who are sacrificially giving. I'm not talking about you who don't call Liberty home. I'm talking about those of us who call Liberty home. We invest in everything else. We invest in things first or more before we invest in the gospel. And I know that many of you go, that, well, of course he's saying that. He's a pastor. He benefits from our money. I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. The Bible's saying it. All of those things, Netflix, your iPhone, eating out, fixing up your house, all of that will fade away. But the gospel rooted in your heart and revealed in your life is eternal. So if we sow leftovers, we should expect to reap leftovers. So if I'm giving God the leftovers, I should expect that I'm going to get the crumbs. Paul says, stop deceiving yourself. Stop mocking God. You've got to sow the gospel if you want to reap the gospel. And the primary place you sow and reap the gospel is in your local church. 
Pastor Kyle was right a few weeks ago. If you don't give here, you probably don't give anywhere. And I'll take it a step further. Those of you who call Liberty home, who are, who are members of our church, are you investing in gospel preaching here? And I'm just talking to you. Listen to me. If you're a member, listen to me for a moment. We're behind budget right now. Not crazy amounts, but we're behind. And I'm not talking to you who are sacrificially giving already. I'm asking those of you who aren't. Are you doing your part? Are you investing in such a way to keep the doors of liberty open? If we keep not meeting budget over years, liberty will have to close its doors. It's just facts, guys. Facts, as the kids say. So the gospel, we have to keep investing, doing our part so the gospel can continue to be preached to a lost and dying world. Or does your giving reflect like it doesn't matter if liberty's here or not? I'll just find another church, no big deal. And you might say, well, I give my time. That's how I invest. Or I give my talents. That's how I invest. But those are all good things, and the Galatian Christians gave those too. But the Bible here is talking about a financial investment. There are practical reasons why we invest, but also spiritual warnings Paul gives. If you aren't going to financially invest in the gospel, don't expect to get the gospel. Some of us aren't even putting seeds in the ground. And we're expecting to get gospel tomatoes. Like, how's that going to happen? Or we give God our leftovers and we wonder why we're getting gospel crumbs planted in our lives and in our hearts. Because our finances reveal that God and his church aren't the things we care about most. We give God out of our first and our best not our leftovers. We ask members to try to give 10%. Maybe you can't give 10%, but start giving somewhere. Maybe if it's just this month, it's five bucks. That's all you can give. Give five bucks, but do it before you see the money hit your bank account, where as soon as it does. But this isn't some type of consumeristic transactional relationship. What Paul uses, he uses a word here that means when he says to share, it actually means to have fellowship. So when Tim Keller reflects on this, he says, Christian teaching is not just one service to be paid for, but a rich fellowship and mutual sharing of the gifts of God. So plain talk, I share my spirit, the spiritual gifts that God gave me with you by preaching the gospel to protect from a false gospel or a non-gospel. And what Paul challenges you to think about, and including myself, because I give too, is that we share our financial gifts that God has given us by investing in liberty. And that means not just that we pay my salary, which is nice. My kids appreciate it. I appreciate it. But also that we share our money so we can do good to all. And that's Paul's last point here, is that a gospel-shaped church does good to all. So Paul says in verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. A gospel-shaped church responds to the gospel by doing good to all. The church doesn't exist for itself. It doesn't exist for programs for our kids. It doesn't exist for teams that I can be on or committees I can be on so I can have this sense of pride and like I'm, I have a part in this church or to give me some type of leadership opportunity or it's not, the, God, the church doesn't exist to be your social club. The church exists for others doing good for others. So whenever you have the opportunity to do good, you should do it. And we do good for those in the household of faith. That's other Christians Paul talks about. We help them out of their sin, like we talked about. We, we bear their burdens. We invest in gospel preaching. And we try to continue to outdo each other by caring for each other. But we also do good for everyone. See, ancient, the ancient Christians, the first Christians, were, really, were seen as really weird by their culture. Why? Because they took care of everyone that their culture tossed away. The culture said, we don't want these people. The church said, we'll take them. And the culture around just said, man, there's a bunch of weirdos. It didn't matter if the people believed like the Christians. They cared for them. Why? Because Jesus cared for the Christians. Yesterday, we had a service day at Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick Elementary. We do good to everyone. For everyone. I doubt there's going to be any type of like return on investment from this. But why do we do it? Why do we clean up and make the school look a little nicer than it was? Because the kids in our neighborhood go there. And we care about them. And we don't want them to be forgotten. Next week we're doing a turkey giveaway. Next Saturday. This, or sorry, this upcoming Saturday. And we do that. Why? Because we want our neighbors to know we care about you. We want you to have a Thanksgiving with your family. We care about that. I don't know if anybody's going to walk into church from that. I don't even care in some ways. But we do because Jesus asked us to do it. So we should always be looking for opportunities to do good to, uh, to others. But Paul also knows and he says here that he, he realizes that doing good, finding every opportunity to do good can be exhausting. So he challenges the Galatian Christians to not give up. Did you notice that? Because there's going to be times where you don't feel like being good to people. Right? Maybe your experience isn't like mine where I wake up every day and I, I just don't want to be good. I don't really want to be nice. Kind of grumpy. If you catch me before my first cup of coffee, it's bad news. But there's other times where you're exhausted and tired and your problems are heavy too. But we need to do it anyway. So Paul says, don't give up. So I ask you to think, could you imagine North, what Northeast Philly would look like if everyone who's part of Liberty looked for every opportunity to show good to others? Liberty, sorry, Northeast would be, Northeast Philly would be a better place to live. It'd be a more enjoyable place to live. It'd be a safer place to live. We said, I'm going to look for every opportunity to do good to someone and for someone. Why? Because Jesus did so much good for me. He gave it all for me. So I can give all for others. 
Because Jesus took care of my relationship with God, I can take care of relationship with others. I can restore them. I can invest. I can do good. And because it cost Jesus everything, it's worth every personal cost that it cost me. Because what I sow, what you sow, will be better than anything you could imagine. So the gospel isn't something we just believe in. It's something we live out. So liberty, let's be a church that's shaped by the gospel. And let's live it out. Let's restore sinners and sufferers together. Let's invest in gospel preaching. And let's do good to all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I appreciate that your word, and we appreciate that your word doesn't shy away from challenging things. But I thank you for your love and your care. I thank you that you restore sinners. That you sent your son to bear our burden on the cross to restore sufferers. I thank you for the investment of Jesus into our lives. And I thank you so much that Jesus was just so good to us. So good we didn't deserve any of it, but he was so good. And may we respond the same way. May we restore, may we invest, and may we do good to all. We pray all this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.